It's an early summer day in South Wales, United Kingdom. Two buddies, Leighton Davies and George Powell, are taking a drive. They speed past the small streets of the town they call home into the lush green valleys of the British countryside. Powell, a 38-year-old warehouse worker, and Davies, who's a little bit older than his friend and a school custodian, are heading to a hamlet in Hertfordshire, a county in West England. But they aren't just out driving for the hell of it. They're traveling all that way to walk around in a field. That's because Davies and Powell are detectorists. What are they detecting, you might ask? Stuff in the ground. Yep, detectorists are the people who walk along the beach or, in this case, a grassy field with that long contraption metal detecting thing looking for, well, whatever it is they can find. Now, there's certain rules when it comes to detecting. First and foremost, you've got to get permission from the person whose land you're detecting on. Suppose that makes sense. And while Davies and Powell had permission to scan this property, once they got going, they were in the zone. I mean, listening to the metal detector, waiting for something to send this thing into a beeping frenzy. The beautiful sounds telling them that they've got something. And when that didn't happen, they strayed and wandered into someone else's territory, someone who didn't know they were out there. And it's there, on this random part of the land, no discernible markers in sight, that it happens. Their detectors start to go off. It's music to their ears, a find. And of course, they started to dig. Now, they're in that hole, Three feet deep, they saw a glimmer of something. The detectors kneeled at the edge, pulling out clumps of dirt. They were dotted with shiny objects. They found coins. Lots and lots of them. It was more than they could possibly hold. And there was jewelry too. A gold ring with a curious pattern on it. A gold armband that was formed to look like a dragon biting its own tail. There was a beautiful misty crystal ball that was encased in gold filigree. There were also hunks of silver, which almost looked like bullet cases, but are called ingots. As they dug, it was clear that there was more and more. They had to stretch out a plastic bag to place all of their findings, and most of them were still encased in dirt. They didn't have to be specialists to realize that they'd come across something pretty significant. So they did what most folks do these days when they come across something cool. They took a bunch of pictures. They couldn't keep it to themselves. And they said on online chat forum, hi guys, look what I found in this field. Isn't it amazing? And that sort of then starts to set ripples off. This is Peter Reval. He's the fines liaison officer for the British Antiquities Scheme. Basically, Peter is the guy you go to when someone finds something in the ground. He evaluates it and makes a record of it. And Peter's got good relationships with most detectorists in the area. And a couple of them tipped him off about Powell and Davies' find. Suddenly, sort of within a couple of weeks of them finding it, I'm hearing rumors from several different people saying, have you heard of a a really important find? I must have heard from three or four different detectorists to say, well, 
it's, it's a massive hoard. As in, there's, there's more than 300 objects. There's gold and there's silver. What do you mean you don't know anything? Here's the thing. Powell and Davies are required by law to report a finding of this size to Peter or another fines liaison officer. Because, and stick with me here, it might actually be considered treasure. This is something which is too important just to let go. At this point, Peter or his colleagues, they haven't heard anything from Powell and Davies about this fantastic find. So I just sent them a message and said, I hear you found something amazing. I think you know that it's treasure. You have 14 days to do something with it. The law requires any fines to be reported within 14 days of discovery. And if you don't, well, you can get into some serious trouble. Davies and Powell, they didn't know exactly what they had on their hands, but they knew it was probably worth something. And their hunch was right. Those objects they found, they were valuable. I mean, very, very valuable. This hoard was not only worth millions of pounds, but it would reveal something entirely new, something that had never been recorded in history until now. But Davies and Powell, they had this treasure in hand. They weren't about to go through some fancy antiquity scheme office. Who needs them? They'd do whatever they could to keep their treasure. I mean, finders keepers, right? I'm Alzo Slade, and from something else, this is Cheat. A series that asks the question, is it ever okay to break the rules? This week, Buried Treasure. How two detectorists stumbled across the hoard of jewels and coins a valuable find that could change history if the finders were willing to give it up. So folks, today's episode is all about treasure. Yes, treasure. The stuff of fairy tales or pirate conquest. The bucket of gold at the end of the rainbow. You guys remember the movie Goonies? Classic film where a group of kids set out on a journey in search of a pirate's lost treasure. As a kid, I imagined finding a chest of gold and jewels. I'm outside digging up my parents' yard, only to end up with dirty fingernails and a handful of earthworms. Sadly, I didn't have any luck. But here's the thing. Sometimes it's not just fantasy. This kind of real treasure, it actually exists. There are people who dedicate their entire lives to finding it. In fact, in England, there's a whole definition for what even constitutes treasure. And there are a whole lot of people who deal with this process, like Peter. So my job is to help the coroner in this part of the world decide if something's treasure or not. Yeah. Across the pond, the coroner does two jobs. They determine cause of death and they determine if something is treasure or not. Seems like a weird coupling to me. Oh, yeah. When I grow up, I want to inspect dead people and see if that bag of stuff you found in the dirt is treasure. Peter's been working with coroners for 18 years. Now, most of us grew up with this rule, and I don't know where it came from, but it says, finders keepers, losers weepers. But in Peter's world, mm mm-mm, that doesn't fly. Because they have what they call the Treasure Act which provides guidance for the coroner and the fines liaison officer like Peter to determine if a find is real treasure. 
The Treasure Act is a piece of legislation that was brought in about 20 years ago. And when it was brought in, it sort of defined for the first time what items of treasure would be. So if something is more than 300 years old and made of precious metal, it will be treasure. Up until then, the definition of treasure was established through a medieval law. I mean, come on, people. You got to keep your treasure laws updated. So the new law says in order for something to be treasure, there needs to be two or more objects with a prehistoric metal as the base or an object that's mostly made from gold or silver or there's got to be two or more coins that are at least 300 years old and are made of at least 10% gold or silver. Now, when you woke up this morning, I bet you didn't know that you were going to learn about the rules of treasure. No need to thank me. At Cheat, we're always glad to be of service to learn you a thing or three about worlds you had no idea about. If somebody finds a, a ring, like a, a wedding ring, and it's got a date inside it, and it says that it was made in 1675, then that will be treasure. But if it was made in 1775, it wouldn't be. Not so easy to find treasure then, huh? But that still doesn't stop people from trying, and those people are the detectorists. If you've ever seen the BBC's Detectorists show... Sorry to interrupt, but are you metal detectors? This is a metal detector. We are metal detectorists. That is a really good snapshot of, of how things are over here, as in it, it's very close to the truth. Look, Peter said it, not me. I'm not trying to pick on my pals, the detectorists. I'm just saying, to walk around aimlessly guided by the beep of a metal detector hoping to find riches, that takes a specific kind of person. There's a huge breadth of different types of people who do this. I suppose typically the vast majority of people do it tend to be sort of fairly loner. But saying that, there are clubs of people who get together and there are sort of commercial rallies where sort of 200 people can get together and, and go and search a field. Peter's pretty connected to the detectorist community because it's usually detectorists who are coming to him with their finds. This can be tools, pottery, jewels, coins, any sort of artifact. My role is to take these objects, to look at them, try and work out what they are, because quite often they aren't complete, they're broken, they're, they're distorted, they might be melted, and then to take the information about where they've been found to then sort of try and unpick that to work out the pattern of history. Peter is part of a large team of liaison officers who've got a whole lot of knowledge about early history and archaeology. I'm telling stories of medieval people, Roman, Saxons, Bronze Age, Neolithic people. England's been around for a little while, so they probably have quite a few artifacts in that dirt. There have been so many groups of people that have invaded or just passed through that there's a lot still to be unearthed. In fact, there's so much, Peter and his team really only focus on items that were made earlier than 1700. But a lot of detectorists still choose to bring their finds to Peter and his colleagues, even if it's just to learn more about it. But if you think you've found real treasure, you've got to report it within 14 days of finding it. Because it's law, but also because in England, treasure items belong to the queen. I mean as if she doesn't have enough treasure already. 
Much of it stolen and not reported as well, but mm, that's for another episode. But for the finder, it's not all bad. There's something in it for them too. Even if their hoard belongs to the queen, they still can get a cut of the value. The way the system works is that if somebody finds one of these and a museum wants to acquire it, if the coroner agrees that their treasure will be valued and that value is split 50% to the finder, 50% to the landowner. If a museum doesn't want to buy it, then it gets returned to the finder and the landowner to dispose of as they want. And this sort of revolutionised the way we understand archaeology or archaeological objects because it meant that people physically had to do something by law and it suddenly allowed museums to sort of acquire things that they would never have been able to perform. There are about a thousand cases of treasure reported every year across the UK. And it's honestly a pretty good deal when the finder gets their cut of the treasure's value. The museum acquires it as if it's gone through an auction house. So it'd be valued and they say it's worth, I don't know, a thousand pounds. And then 500 pounds will go to the finder, 500 to the landowner. They receive that reward as a gift from the crown. So they don't have to pay tax on it either. Seems like everybody wins, right? The museum gets the treasure. The finder gets some money, as does the landowner. Powell and Davies, they're no newbies here. They have experience as detectorists. They know they'll have to check in, so they go to the finds liaison office in Wales. So the two finders went to see some my colleagues in Wales and brought a handful of objects in. The gold arm ring, the massive finger ring, gorgeous object in its, its own right and really rare, a crystal sphere within a gold cage. These objects were brought into the museum and they matched the descriptions of what I was being told. Well, what didn't come into the museum were more than 300 silver coins from the same date. Peter knew from his other detectorist sources, who can be a pretty chatty bunch, or in this case, snitches, that there were far more than 30 items that Powell and Davies brought to the Wales office. Peter's colleagues questioned Powell and Davies more about their find. And they got answers which they weren't happy with. Powell and Davies reported a different location for the find, one that didn't match up when someone else went to investigate. They also told the officers that these objects weren't all from the same dig, and they for sure didn't say anything about the rest of the hoard. It's like having a test and knowing that you've got the answers and you know, you're waiting for them to give you the information. He'd heard about the photographs Powell and Davies took that showed there were hundreds of objects. And besides, the finds that Powell and Davies did bring in matched the description of what Peter already knew. So he had good reason to believe that his sources were right, that there was more out there. We know that we have information about all of this other stuff. Where is it? But Powell and Davies, they weren't about to give up any other information. And that's unfortunately when the police had to get involved. The police? Wait a minute. Is it really that serious? I mean, these dudes, they dug up some treasure that's been there for centuries, and the police get called? Are you going to take them to jail for not reporting coins that no one knew existed in the first place? Well, we'll find out after the break. There's a lot happening these days. 
but I have just the thing to get you up to speed on what matters, without taking too much of your time. The 7 from the Washington Post is a podcast that gives you the seven most important and interesting stories, and we always try to save room for something fun. You get it all in about seven minutes or less. I'm Hannah Jewell. I'll get you caught up with The 7 every weekday. So follow The 7 right now. I'm Samantha Cole, host of the new season of Understood, The Pornhub Empire. Over the course of four episodes, I'll tell you how a horny YouTube knockoff in Canada came to dominate the porn world, only to shatter their cheeky reputation in a massive scandal. The Pornhub Empire is a new season of Understood from the CBC. Available now wherever you get your podcasts. Now the police are in on the whole treasure hunting thing? Maybe it all sounds a little wacky, but these artifacts? Actually, they're worth a lot. And by concealing them, Powell and Davies were actually breaking a law. The police were very, very interested because it's, it represents a huge, significant lump of money. And we had information. We knew roughly what had been found. It had been corroborated by some of the material which had been handed in. And the, the next thing, the police went to arrest them and raid their homes to see if they could recover any other artefacts from it. And Peter went with them. I was somebody who went along with the police to help them understand the objects that they were recovering. It wasn't exactly what Peter had ever anticipated would happen in his 18-year career as a fines liaison officer. It wasn't like a you see on the telly where sort of they bash down the door and they pour in and stop, I'm an archaeologist, I know what I'm doing. It wasn't that. But basically, I went to a police station, I was driven to South Wales. They'd already arrested the zoo detectorist and taken them away. And my job was then to work with the team who was searching the house. He was there as an expert. He could tell the police if there was anything significant to the case in the detectorist's homes. And there was. They ended up finding two dozen more coins. But still, nowhere near the alleged hundreds. These people have had the opportunity to do the right thing. We now need to investigate. And we had no idea what the hoard was going to be. We just knew that we hadn't got all of it. At this point, if you're like me, you're probably thinking, man, what is the big deal? Why are they employing law enforcement and all of these liaison people for some coins? Well, we probably need to pause here for a second to talk a little bit about why this hoard was so significant. See, we know these objects are worth a lot of money because they contain a certain amount of gold and silver. And they're rare. But they also provide some critical information about Anglo-Saxon life in Herefordshire. Information no one knew before this. So we're talking from about the 5th century to the 10th, 11th century. That's the whole Anglo-Saxon period. This is Judy Stevenson. She's the team leader at the Herefordshire Museum. We have very little in the county. There's one or two historical records which tie into it, but those are very few and far between. So our knowledge of the Saxon period is limited. But what we do know is that around 790 AD, during the Anglo-Saxon period, England was beginning to have a Viking problem. It was a whole period of fighting against the invasion of the Vikings. 
This period of time is also known as the Dark Ages. The Vikings, who hailed from Scandinavia, well, they were greedy. So they did what greedy people do. They started taking all the gold and silver they could get. And one of their stops was England, because it had wealth, and the Vikings, they wanted it. When they arrived, England was just a bunch of kingdoms ripe for the taking. The Vikings took over London, which at the time was part of the Kingdom of Wessex. They also seized Northumbria and East Anglia. But as far as everyone knew, they had never made it to Hertfordshire. There was no evidence that this tiny county, nearly 60 miles from South Wales, had also been a target. But this all changed with the objects that Powell and Davies did report. They changed actual history, which is kind of a huge deal. I got a text message from Peter, and he had heard rumors of some fantastic Saxon items turning up. And he had a couple of pictures he could send me, and I saw these, and I just couldn't believe my eyes. As cool as the jewels were, they didn't matter all that much. And it wasn't the misty crystal ball or the dragon armband that revealed new historical information. It was the coins. And the significance lies in really in the coins and what they represent and the stories they're saying. You know how we've got Abraham Lincoln on a penny? Well, these Anglo-Saxon coins also had their leaders or rulers' faces on them. There were two guys in particular. The coins themselves are either of Alfred, the King of Wessex, and also the King of Mercia at the time, Sheolwulf. Boom, another history lesson coming. So check this out. During the Anglo-Saxon period, England was made up of seven kingdoms. Two of the largest kingdoms were called Wessex and Mercia, and they were ruled by Alfred the Great of Wessex and King Cherwulf of Mercia. Why is it that we don't have names like this now? Well, Alfred the Great knew very well that history favors those who write it. Now, he was very, very keen on recording history from his angle, <laughs> clearly, as he was king and ruler. And in King Alfred's record, you can tell he was not a big fan of King Cherwolf of Mercia. He calls the guy an unwise thing. Ooh, burn notice. That's a big insult to a king back then. He basically called this dude a bootleg ruler. In fact, he is described by Alfred's chroniclers as a puppet of the Vikings and a foolish thane, a foolish king thane, describing him really as a nobody. And that's how King Cherwolf went down in history, as a foolish nobody. But that all changed with Powell and Davies' find. In particular, one coin was a style called the Two Emperors coin. It's extremely rare. In the name, it's kind of self-explanatory. You've got on the back of them, on the reverse, an image of two people, which are called two emperors, two significant people, rulers, standing together. And on the front of the coins, they either have the name of Alfred or the name of Cherwolf. And the two emperors' coin is a sign of a connection between the kings. So they were both minting coins of a similar style, signifying that they were working together. The existence of two emperor coins means that Cherwolf actually wasn't a nobody. They aligned to fight the Vikings, and it was so significant, he and Alfred were churning out matching currency together. Look at those buddies. 
what that told us was that actually there was a very strong bond of clearly a political alliance between the two kingdoms. Now, what's interesting about that is that that's not recorded in any of the Anglo-Saxon chronicles, as they were called. There's no mention of this alliance. And all of these things were previously not known about until this was discovered in 2015. But how do we know that this isn't just an Anglo-Saxon who was burying their goods, saving them for later? How do we know it's a Viking horde? The key thing here is actually what makes up the horde. Now, there are two or three things in the horde that make it very much likely to have been buried by a Viking or owned by a Viking. An Islamic coin, a silver dirham. The Vikings, who were traveling the world, stealing what they could, well, it would make sense that they'd have all types of international currency on them. And so this horde is really looking like the first piece of evidence that shows the Vikings had been to Herefordshire. And all of this came from just a couple of coins. And there were allegedly hundreds more of them. They just needed to track them down. But while the police were still investigating, something else was happening. The antiquities market, so the coin collector's market, started to react to this massive influx of Anglo-Saxon and Viking material, which is really rare, but also is coming up from a what looks like a hoard that has been unreported. Ah, see, these were probably the coins that Powell and Davies found. The hoard was being divided. The police needed to act quickly, or the remaining treasure would be lost forever. More after the break. If you're looking for a smoking gun, I can absolutely guarantee you, you will not find it. In October 2001, a series of letters filled with a deadly powder called anthrax were dropped into the U.S. mail system. What started as an unprecedented case turned into an unsettling mystery. Who sent these deadly letters and why? From Campside Media and Sony Music Entertainment, I'm Josh Dean, and this is Cover Up Season 4, The Anthrax Threat, available now. I'm Nick Friedman. I'm Lee Alec Murray. And I'm Leah President. And this is Crunchyroll Presents The Anime Effect. We're a new show breaking down the anime and pop culture news you care about each and every week. I can't think of a better studio to bring something like this to life. Yeah, I agree. We're covering all the classics. If I don't know a lot about Godzilla, which I do, but I'm trying to pretend (laughs) that I don't right now. Hold it in. And our current faves. Luffy must have his due. (laughs) And we agree on some things. But not on everything. Oof. I remember, what was that? (laughs) Say what you're going to say and I'll circle back. Listen to Crunchyroll Presents The Anime Effect every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. And watch full video episodes on Crunchyroll or the Crunchyroll YouTube channel. I think it's clear by now that we're really talking about treasure here real treasure. Not only are these pieces financially valuable, they're also changing the course of history. The coins themselves, which were recovered, are so extremely rare, as in individually, they are worth tens of thousands of pounds, and they are um, 
they are they rewrite our understanding of, of British history. That's how rare and important they are. They tell us something absolutely brand new that we didn't know before. The archaeologists, they really want to get their hands on the rest of these coins. If there was a two emperors coin in the mix, what else could there be? But their window of opportunity was closing because what did the detectorists do with these historically valuable coins? Coins that are required by law to be reported. Well, they found a couple of dealers and started to sell some of the coins on the antiquities market. Whether the detectorists knew that when they sold them, I don't think they did. But I think the people buying them absolutely did. Powell and Davies didn't even make that much money from the pieces they did sell. We know that the coins that they'd sold, they received very little money for them, as in less than 10% of their actual worth they received in cash. Less than 10%? Ooh, that's got to hurt. Over the course of the police's investigation, they seized Powell and Davies' phones. Do you remember how they took those pics of the treasure when they first found it? Bro, why did you guys take pictures? And check this out. They tried to delete the photos. And most of us know that when you delete, are you really deleting? They thought that that information had disappeared, but you can never get rid of digital information and the police were able to use forensic techniques to restore a lot of it. And the photos were pretty damning. You can see in some of them the hundreds of coins that people had been talking about the whole time. These recovered images would end up being pretty crucial evidence when the two detectorists finally went to trial. So they used that information at the trial as well, including simple things like them holding pictures of the coins and because their fingers were in, they were able to take digital fingerprints to prove that they were the person holding the coins. During the trial, Powell and Davies tried all sorts of tricks. They tried to claim that, hey, we just staged our finding. They planted their own coins to make the find look bigger and better than it seemed. The reason to do that? We were just trying to show off. But mm, the argument didn't really hold that much water. They had an excuse for every piece of evidence, and I think the attitude was one which was, we'll get away with it because nobody's really that fussed. Even if I'm stood here in court with a, a judge and a juror in front of me, I'm going to get away with it. Mm, not so much. I'm sure you can guess what happens next. In November of 2019, over four years after the hoard was first discovered, Powell, Davies, and two guys who helped them sell some of the objects were convicted on concealment charges. Powell and Davies were also found guilty of theft. They went to prison for 10 years and eight and a half years. Dang! 10 years? For some coins they found. Some people were shocked. It was a pretty harsh sentence. But the judge gave the detectorist every opportunity to return the treasure. Because that's the thing, and it's a bit of a doozy. 90% of the treasure is still missing. 90%. That's a whole lot of treasure to still be out there. The judge, before he sentenced them, gave them a weekend to say, well, look, this is almost your last chance to say, here's where it is. I'm sorry, here's where it is. But every opportunity they were given, they've never come forward with the information of, of their own court. And now, where's the rest of the hoard? It could really be anywhere. 
They might have sold some more through the antiquities market, which means it could be a long time before any of the objects turn up. One of the issues is that the coin market, the antiquities market, is international. So we don't know where these objects have, have ended up. They could be anywhere in the world because we're talking about objects which are no bigger than your thumb. Which also means that Powell and Davies could have stashed it for themselves somewhere, reburied the buried treasure. Hoard makes it sound like it's a, a treasure chest bulging with these objects. These coins are sort of less than an inch uh, wide, a sixteenth of an inch thick. They could be sort of 300 of them could be stacked up and put with inside a, a Coke can and buried again. And you got to remember, too, if Powell and Davies had just reported the entire hoard, they each would have received a whole lot more money than they got from whatever they did sell off and they wouldn't be going to prison. I honestly don't know why the finders didn't report them, because if they had reported them, they would have all received at least a quarter share of the value of the objects. And when we come down to the objects themselves, we're not talking about thousands of, of pounds. We're not talking about hundreds of thousands of pounds. We're talking about millions of pounds. The items that have been recovered have been estimated to be worth three million pounds. The whole hoard, a hefty 12 million pounds. This is life-changing money, even if you're only getting a quarter of it. But instead, these guys chose the fast cash. The two detectorists in this case are a part of a tiny minority who see their own greed as more important than society's benefit of what they find. At the sentencing, the judge talked about how Powell and Davies' theft was more than just a financial crime. He said, You cheated the farmer, his mother, the landowner, and also the public when you committed theft of these items. That is because the treasure belongs to the nation. The benefit to the nation is these items can be seen and admired by others. It's not a victimless crime, it's, it's theft. And, and one of the things which came through the trial was that the history that they have stolen from the people of England and Wales, of Britain, is really, really important. Treasure belongs to the nation, so the law says. And as the archaeologist pointed out, for kids who learn about Anglo-Saxon history, now they won't get to see the treasure at the museum. Plus, the installation of the full treasure in Herefordshire would have brought visitors in from all over, keeping the local economy active. The hoard is currently being held at the British Museum. Judy is starting a campaign to bring it back to Herefordshire, where it was found in the first place. I think the um, national significance is obviously one that is quite important, but I think it's a sense that this, this significant find actually belongs to the people here. It was found in this area. It's part of our cultural heritage. It's part of our community heritage. And therefore, it's significant. And it needs to be here, really, where it's part of where people live. As for the rest of the hoard, well, we might not know for a long time what happened to it. The pill I have to swallow is that, yes, archaeologically, we've done everything we can. But could we have done something different? How could we have got those people to report their find when they made it? What could we have done to make them trust us more? As in, everyone says, oh, it's just bad apples. But this happens regularly. Not so regularly that it's newsworthy, but 
we know these objects are found on a regular basis across England and Wales. And, and when they are found, that that some people don't do the right thing. And it sort of means that the system isn't always working the way it should do. These guys broke the rules and they cheated, trying to get over. But it seems like the only people they did cheat, literally, were themselves. They cheated themselves on so many levels. First, by taking photos and showing off. And then when they got the chance to come clean, they cheated themselves by continuing to lie. When, if they had just told the truth, they'd have been much better off. Makes you wonder, if you're really a crook, is it possible for you to do the right thing when you know doing the right thing will get you more than breaking the rules? I feel like this is one of those situations where clearly these guys didn't know what they had. They knew it was valuable, and if they were smart crooks, they would have reported the treasure, and they would have been much richer and definitely much more free because they wouldn't have gone to prison. So, is there a lesson in this story? Stop taking photos to show off, and don't delete them thinking that they're actually gone. And two, sometimes, well, this is going to sound kind of silly, the best cheat is just to do the right thing. I know it doesn't make sense, but think about these two rascals. They could have walked away, local heroes, for changing the trajectory of Anglo-Saxon history. And they could have done it with a whole lot of pounds in their pocket. Suckers. Hey folks, thanks for listening. Just a reminder to follow Cheat wherever you get it. And please do leave a rating and a review if you like what we're doing. It helps other people discover the show. And of course, we want more listeners. Also, if you want to listen to the show without the ads, you can subscribe to Cheat Plus. It's like Cheat, but better. It's just $2.99 a month, or if you're in the UK, £2.49. And you get all of this without having to listen to those annoying commercials. Just go to Apple Podcasts and hit subscribe instead of follow. You can try it for free now. Next week on Cheat. I felt betrayed by the whole thing. I just felt like I had been hoodwinked. But the funny thing is that I knew that Ache exaggerated from time to time. I knew eventually sometimes that he didn't tell the truth. I did not imagine that it was to this capacity, however. Cheat is written and presented by me, Alzo Slade. This episode was produced by Julia Doyle. The executive producers are Lizzie Jacobs and Tom Koenig. The series editor is Tom Fuller. Engineering, sound design, and scoring by Martin Peralta at Output Media. Our production coordinators are Jennifer Mystery and Iker Egbatola. <laughs>